0: Welcome back to another edition of the Newly Meds Podcast. Uh, today we've got a really special episode, something that I've been having in the sight of you here for quite some time and I'm really excited about. We're going to be doing a case review and a little bit of a case breakdown uh, with some clinical pearls and inputs uh, that I think you guys are all going to really enjoy. But the main surprise I have here for this episode is is a guest speaker, a really good friend of mine. Uh, His name is Dan, very experienced provider and going through a lot of the shoes that you guys are in right now with paramedic school. But without getting too much into Dan's history and background in EMS, I'm going to let him introduce himself uh, and welcome him to the podcast. So Dan, go ahead and introduce yourself. Tell us why you're here.
1: I am here because you invited me here um no we i remember sitting uh sitting at our station and having a conversation before this ever even actually started was super excited to uh, kind of see this actually start to blossom into what it is today so that's really cool um but like uh like he said my name is dan i have uh, i got my emt back in 2000 uh, the end of 2012 um, and have been an emt uh, in various organizations from rural to um, city and was in that capacity for um, just under 10 years before I went and got my advanced EMT, and then I am now uh, currently about halfway through medic school. So it's been very interesting kind of seeing the things that you kind of think you know as an EMT, uh, the things that you kind of think that you have a kind of grasp on, um, and then Kind of realize that you don't actually understand what really uh, is going on behind the scenes until you start to break that down even more. Um, I have been fortunate enough to have a lot of great mentors over the year, uh, over the years. Um, with uh, where I first started out, I had a very experienced medic partner that uh, was very into education, helped me along the way, um, just would try and teach me things as we were going along. And then even just as recently as when we started working together, um, so I've had over this you know past decade have had quite a few uh, very educated people that have been helping me along the way as well. So that's been very nice. Um, but, yeah.
0: So you did mention that you started out in EMS, obviously, at an EMT capacity, and you sort of relearn all the tools and tricks when you go to AEMT and uh, remastering the basics if they weren't already mastered at that time. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, you're now in medic school. So before we jump into this case, um, you said you're about halfway through, just me knowing you. I know that you're now through cardiology, so going to be a correct. special actually, treat. I actually just, uh,
1: just uh, tested out of cardiology today for our, uh, for our section final for that. So we are through cardiology as far as at least the lectures go. There's yeah. still a ton more to learn.
0: Plenty more in the world <laughs> of realize, cardiology. I uh,
1: realize, we were talking earlier today, I realize that I actually feel like I know less than when I started. But, I mean, looking at it, obviously that's not true, but there's still a lot to learn.
0: Definitely, yeah. It all it all sort of clicks then when you get out into uh, clinical knowledge and and put it all together. So I think with that case study today, that'll be a real treat since we are obviously going to be talking about cardiology. If that was not obvious enough yet, but before we jump into it, um, what was the big transition for you going from AEMT um, and you know me knowing you, a fairly experienced AEMT? Um, I don't want to say you were comfortable in that spot, but you were. Performing at a very high level as far as A's go, and then going into paramedic school, and sort of restarting or were you breaking it down from ground zero again. How did you? How did you rebuild your mastery of EMS knowledge and clinical knowledge?
1: Well, I will say. I mean, I have, in addition to my my role as an EMT and as an AEMT, um, I have been a state instructor for um, two, almost three years now. Uh, I have always taken education, you know, very seriously. We've, we would sit many a night and just go over just whatever random topic was uh, of interest that night. So, I mean, I've always taken education very seriously, and I've always taken training and, and trying to further that, uh, further my education along the way, even prior to, to going to medical school. Um, so that, I was very fortunate that some people don't, it's not that they don't necessarily have that mindset, but they kind of go into it a little less prepared than I feel like I was going in. I mean, even with how prepared I was going in, it it definitely is very eye-opening when, you know, day one and you start breaking down the Krebs cycle and and going through all of this uh, pretty intense A&P that you think you kind of start learning about in A school and then you realize, wow, we didn't even even scratch the surface on that. Um, But yeah, I think I have... The pretty much the entirety of my adult life have been in some form of higher education, um, working on degrees, working on various uh, certifications. So I've always um, I've always been able to kind of kind of disassociate what experience I have, and kind of start from the ground level with where we're we're supposed to be starting and with what we're supposed to be learning, but still able to kind of tie that in with my real world experience as well. Um, I'm I'm the guy that sits in the back of the class, you know. It's not until even you know we're almost five, almost six months in, and you know it might not have been, even been till about a month or two ago that people realized you know that I that I teach and that I do other things um, that I'm otherwise pretty involved in our company. So I try not to I try not to make it about me. I try not to make it about anything like that, and just sit back and do the job that I'm there for, which is to to learn and become a better provider.
0: That's awesome. It's really good to hear that you sort of take that approach knowing that um, even with the experience that you have, that there's plenty to learn. And I think that's a huge step um, for a lot of paramedic students is realizing that uh, a lot of people will say it's like drinking, you know, water out of a fire hydrant. It's coming at you really, really quick. There's a lot of information and a lot of these programs are accelerated, especially nowadays. So being able to be humble about your knowledge level and say, you know, no matter what your certification is or your educational background, um, there's always something new to learn. So it's it's really good to, to hear you say that. And I know a lot of people listening are um, gonna take a lot of advice from that as well. Yeah, so, absolutely. But now that we got that intro underway, um, sort of gonna open up this case here. So I will say uh, from this point forward in the podcast, I would recommend if you're listening to go ahead and pause. And if you are able to either pull up on your computer or a printout or in a textbook, maybe the cardiac action potential, that's something that we're gonna have a, pretty big theme on here coming towards the end of the episode, but it'll be really good to uh, sort of have a mental and a physical image of the uh, cardiac AP uh, as we're talking about some of the interventions and other things that we're going to be doing, um, with this episode. So as we get into it, uh, Dan over there clinking his water around, we're going to open this case up and, uh, just give a general background here. So, um, I'm going to open the case up to Dan and sort of hear his perspective and you can all hear his perspective on how he would go through the case um, currently as a medic student in his capacity as a medic student and also as an EMS provider and I'll sort of be keying in some clinical inputs that I think are really important to understand as we work through it. So Dan, you've got a greater than 60 year old male. male. We're gonna keep it pretty generic here with the information. Um, We'll say you get called out Class 1, Code 3, whatever your service calls it. But you got called out emergency for a fall. Greater than 60-year-old male, no additional information. And this is in a rural area, and you're on a medic squad. So um, you've got a BLS unit coming, unsure of their ETA. They have not gone responding on the radio yet. You've gone responding, um, and you're sort of starting to get yourself to scene. So we'll say you've arrived on the scene, you make patient contact after a couple minutes of being on scene, trying to gain access to the residence. no BLS unit on scene. What equipment are you bringing with you? What do you want to know? We'll say a family member greets you at the door, um, sort of starts to direct you to the patient as things go. Why don't you walk us through your sort of initial scene size up, the equipment that you have, what you would want to bring with you, um, and just your thoughts right off the bat.
1: I mean, with, uh, with my scene size up there, obviously... I'm a big uh, believer that you need to take equipment into the scene. I you know, obviously there's exceptions to every rule. But generally speaking, it uh, depends obviously what, what your service has, how you have your setups, but I'm taking whatever cardiac monitor I have and whatever uh, first end type bag that we would have, something that can get me out of a pinch if immediately necessary. And I'm doing that basically anytime that I can't see the patient from, from the ambulance. So if I'm going into a residence, if I'm going uh, somewhere off a beaten path or something like that, where I can't physically see the patient from the ambulance, I'm just taking I'm taking a, uh, the uh, first in bag and a monitor. Worst case scenario, I, I'm sure you've been in these situations too, where it's it's a you know, a, a generally ill person, non-emergency response, and you uh, get there, and uh, as you're walking into, you know, maybe a skilled nursing facility, and you hear the AED saying, uh, analyzing now, you know, I've, we've all been on those types of calls where it's not what it's supposed to be. So I've been burnt with that early on in my career, and ever since then, I don't, uh, I don't take those chances. But yeah, so as far as the scene size up goes... I'm looking for any cues, uh, trying to gain information from uh, any family members or bystanders, obviously, uh, as we're trying to make our way to the patient. And, you know, looking, seeing uh, what's going on at the residence, seeing uh, if there's maybe any cues that might uh, let me know what's going on. You know, at this point, I'm still in the mindset that it's a fall. Um, So we're looking to see maybe if there's any traumatic nature, Um, keeping in mind that obviously there could be a medical cause with that but uh as you know as i find the patient see what's going on get my general impression you know not to not to speak to the national registry sheets but make that general impression of of what what i'm seeing how the patient's <laughs> presenting you know the whole sick not sick uh, mentality trying to make that rapid determination of is this you know a simple ground level low mechanism mechanical fall or is there something more actually going on
0: right and i think that we all sort of get in that mindset sometimes of, you know, we run call after call and just based off of some of the vague information we might get, we fall into the habit of um, not bringing anything or maybe just bringing a cardiac monitor or just bringing an ALS bag or a BLS bag or some oxygen if you're coming out for a breathing problem, something that could get you through the first couple of minutes. <clears throat> but especially being uh, on a medic unit, like I said, I think it's important that we, do sort of bring what we think we're going to need, um, especially if you're arriving on scene and there's no BLS unit. I know a lot of um, newer medics and paramedic students, you don't think about it all the time. You're probably going to be put on a MICU um, starting out, but you may be on a medic unit and you may not have a BLS transporting unit on scene. It may just be yourself. Mm-hmm. So it is really important to hit that um, sort of stage. you making sure you're bringing what you need you don't
1: have that, that partner to bail you out. You don't have that ability to, to stay there with the patient, get things started while your partner goes out and grabs those things. You are
0: Exactly. You got to bring what you need to, for manager. at least like 10 to 15 minutes waiting on another unit, making sure that you can perform all your care um, inside of the residence. So as we're sort of progressing through this call here, we'll say, like I said, a family member greets you at the door, states that um, your patient has a week-long history of syncope, He's had some falls, sort of, I guess that's how that came, this class came out as a fall. And says that there's like not really any acute trauma. You start to make patient contact at this point. And like I said, you're seeing a greater than six-year-old male. He's sitting in his recliner watching TV with a dinner tray out and is just not looking well. A little bit tachypnic, but you're not really thinking um, like respiratory tachypnea, like little bit of an elevated rate, we'd say like 26 to 28, no accessory muscle use, pale diaphoretic. Um, he's on at-home oxygen on a nasal cannula, um, just looking generally ill. Is that an all-time thing? That's an all-time thing. Yep, he's on oxygen all the time. So what are your impressions here? Again, patient's not looking great. Um, we'll say he's alert and oriented, but a little bit confused. I wouldn't quite classify him as altered mental status, but I would definitely classify him in the confused category, so... Um, depending on how you look at that, it could fall into the same exact category. Um, but he is alert, knows he's at home, knows his name, um, knows who you are, just isn't sure of the time and sort of not sure exactly um, what's going on with his condition.
1: And per the per the family member there, that's I would imagine not normal at this point.
0: Not a great historian on scene, we'll say, but yeah, we'll go with you know not normal. He's usually a little bit more with it, but um, the syncope has been abnormal for the last week. You can see he's got a little bit of a contusion on his head with a bandage, um, and a little another bandage on his ear that looks like there was some previous trauma there. So, what are you thinking now that you've visualized this patient?
1: So obviously, there's some type of uh, some type of process that's going on. That uh, you know, if he's if he's pale, he's said sweaty. You know, there's there's something going on that uh, he's not perfusing appropriately. You know. Are we still thinking trauma mindset? Maybe. But at at this point, we got to get in there and figure out what's going on. Uh, I know we said uh, family's a poor historian, and if he's uh, a little bit in the confused category, that might make uh, the history itself a little bit more difficult to obtain. But at the end of the day, uh, fall back on uh, the things that we can see and the things that we can uh, figure out for ourselves. Again, a good assessment. uh, Start with at least an initial baseline set of vital signs. And uh, start trying to piece everything together as we're, as we're going through the initial, you know, minute or two on scene with this patient.
0: Sure. So as we're going through this, we'll say that, you know, family provides you with a med list, which is really helpful. Not great historians, but I'll go ahead and decipher that for you. And we'll say that this patient um, looks to have a COPD history by the medication's. Um, and looks to have some asthma. Doesn't really look like he has any sort of significant cardiac history, not on any thinners, um, so the fall history, um, no blood thinners or anything like that. Uh, doesn't look like he has any loop diuretics or any diuretics at all, so um, you're really not thinking heart failure at this point. Um just so that the listeners can sort of gauge a timeline here, you said you wanted to grab vitals um, and get them hooked up to your equipment. So, what do you want to get them hooked up to, and how quickly are you getting them hooked up to the equipment? And in what capacity um, after you make patient contact?
1: I like to I like to start working right away. Um, yeah, if there's anything uh, that I immediately see that needs to be further assessed, I'm going to assess that in the process. But at the end of the day, I can talk and and complete menial tasks at the same time. I'm going to throw them on the the pulse oximeter. I'm going to throw them on a blood pressure cuff at minimum uh, between those two and at least get started with that as I'm talking within the first, honestly, within the first at least two or three minutes at at the most.
0: Yeah, yeah. I I think you're hitting the key points there. I think really um, as we're starting to progress into this ALS mindset, especially being on a medic unit, Um, multitasking is going to be huge it's going to be just you um, for some calls for an unknown period of time so being able to work and do your job and obtain your objective information while gathering some subjective data so how the patient feels medication lists all of that is going to be really important to do at the same time so um, sort of to put in the listener's mind here i would say we want to get this guy on the pulse ox get him you know a blood pressure probably pretty quickly on within 30 seconds to a minute, right? We make patient contact. You see that he doesn't look great. He's on at-home oxygen. So you're thinking, and he's a little tachypnic, maybe breathing. We want to check out, you know, what his, his pulse ox looks like, what his SPO2 looks like um, fairly quickly. We want to obtain those diagnostics fast. Um, How quickly do you want to get this patient on at least a three lead?
1: I mean, I'm, I'm going to be, I mean, at this point, that's going to be just part of the, accoutrement of of with the pulse ox yeah if we're we're turning the monitor on just throw everything on at the same time
0: good i I think you're making a a really good connection there um i always say if you know you turn your monitor on to get a pulse ox and a blood pressure those three lead cables are right there it takes 25 to 30 seconds to put keep in mind we're putting four stickers on somebody um and whether you're doing it on the forearms and the calves or um, you know, the upper shoulders and lower abdomen, uh, you can pretty quickly assess someone's just really fast uh, cardiovascular status by doing that. Absolutely. So um, let's say we've gotten to that point, right? So we're going to say your patient's pretty hypoxemic on his oxygen. We'll say he's uh, 80 to 82%. Um, heart rate up there on the pulse ox is irregular, um, but it's shooting back between 140, 160 right now. Uh, and you do get that three lead on and you're looking at um, and I will say this now, all of these uh, EKGs will be linked in the show notes so that you, as you're listening, can take a peek at this. But you hook your three lead up and you're seeing a little bit of a wide, complex arrhythmia. It's a little bit fast. It's definitely a regular. Um, what do you want to do next?
1: I'm, I want to get in with the 12 lead at this point just to uh, see if, you know, what exactly we're dealing with. Is it a, you know, what, what's causing that Y complex? Is there uh, a block or something like that going on? Or is he, in fact, in a, a VTAC?
0: Good. And I think you're making, uh, again, really good connections here. So um, if you're not putting it together yet, you're making a list of differential diagnoses, whether you know it or not, right? You're thinking these things in your head. Maybe it's a block. Um, maybe it's VT. It's wide. It's fast. It's irregular. regular. I'm not exactly sure what's going on. I need a 12 lead to do more. Uh, diagnostic testing, but you're making a very quick list of differentials in your head with why does this three lead look weird? Right. So you get them on the 12 lead, a little bit of artifacts, but you're looking at uh, a wide, complex, sort of irregular rhythm, and you've seen the strip. What do you think you're looking at there? And what are you considering as far as this patient as a whole goes with? continuing your treatment plans here. What's in your head for differentials? What's this 12-lead look like? What are your next steps?
1: Well, so I'll be uh, be real honest with you. The very first time that I looked at it, um, I see the Y-complex tachycardia, and my mind obviously immediately goes to AV-tach. And I think I even said that out loud, and you kind of just looked at me, and I was like, well, okay, there's a little bit more there to that. Uh, So I start looking a little bit deeper, um, and see, okay, well, what, what type of criteria can we find? Is there, a, is there a block? Is there something else that's going on? Because clearly I'm missing something at this point. Um, and we've been talking about this for a couple of weeks now. But um, so looking at that, what, uh, what other information can I see that might cue me into, is there, a, uh, particularly at this point, I'm concerned for obviously a block uh, with, that, with that Y complex.
0: So I definitely agree. I think when we're looking at that um, 12 lead that uh, Dan's going to pull up here again, sort of just to walk through it some more, but um, he hit everything on the head there. So I will always urge you, especially as newer medics hitting the street, right? You get a 12 lead, you're looking at a wide complex arrhythmia. Your mind should immediately go to VTAC until proven otherwise. And in your unstable patients, if they are, you know, hypotensive, if they're altered mental, depending on a lot of their complaints, that needs to be dressed immediately and it needs to be treated as VTAC, right? This is a life-threatening condition. Um, so if it's wide, if it's fast, uh, I will always urge you to say it's VTAC until otherwise. So we're going to say this patient was normotensive. We'll say his blood pressure was 142 over 78, something around there. MAP was pretty solid. Um, again, we're not super concerned with the mentation, a little bit confused, but not super able to get a baseline what are some criteria that you learned? Obviously, you just got through cardiology in medic school. So, before we dive deep into some deeper criteria when we're looking to sort of break down, is this VTAC, is this uh, SVT with an, an aberrant conduction, um, you know, some sort of bifascicular block or a bundle branch block, what are the criteria that you look for now that you're done with cardiology that's cluing you into maybe this isn't VTAC, maybe I should take another 12-lead or take a deeper look here?
1: Well, before we even start with that, I know my program in particular, and I would imagine a, a majority of the programs probably kind of function in the same capacity, but we were very much, in our, in our treatments, in our assessments, in our, in our labs, we very much followed the AHA guidelines and had them kind of pounded in our heads not necessarily a bad thing but uh, they were very much that was how we approach a cardiac type situation is it is it fast is it slow is it stable is it unstable is it getting electricity is it getting medication Um, so that's kind of the super generalized super simple uh, simplified excuse me um, mindset anytime that I'm approaching any type of cardiac type right. situation. That's going to be your
0: groundwork for exactly. all your cardiacs. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and then from there. We're going to be diving diving deeper into, you know, trying to differentiate. So you said you've got your groundwork done, right? You took your 12 lead. Are we fast? Are we slow? Are we regular? Are we irregular? And we were talking a lot about the AHA and looking into even ACLS, putting a lot of the things that you learn in paramedic school um, with your, cardio- you know, your cardiology. We look at the American Heart Association and they give us, you know, our ACLS and a lot of those classes. What are some things now that you're going to want to look deeper into? So you hit you hit the nail on the head, right? We're looking fast, slow, regular, irregular, narrow, but wide, narrow, wide. So sort of now you're in this this unchartered territory, right? You've got something that's wide. You've got something that's irregular and you've got something that's fast. And so a lot of times if you look at, you know, ACLS, we think wide, irregular, regular um, and FAST, and you're thinking like some sort of polymorphic VTAC, torsades even. But now we're sort of in this sort of uncomfortable zone. Your patient's talking to you. They have palpable pulses. They're normotensive. So what do we want to look at even further to try and create this list of de- differentials to guide your treatment plan here?
1: Well, exactly. And, and you brought it up earlier. Um, we're looking to see do we have the first thing is any type of aberrant conduction. Um, is there some type of block? Is there something outside of a ventricular, um, conduction pathway that's causing this wide complex?
0: So where are you looking for that right off the bat? Where, when you get this 12 lead and you're like, Hmm, I'm not thinking VT, I got to take a second glance here, right? Like it's not VT, the VT is going to be pretty obvious when we think about VTAC morphology. Sometimes it can be a little bit harder to identify, but for the most part, you look at it and you're like. You know, paramedics are really good about it. We know what rhythms we can shock. Right. We're, you know, we specialize in that area. You're going to see VT, and you're going to be like, ah, right. I, I know what I'm dealing with. Here, you sort of got that like hair on the back of your neck. Hmm. You know, it's not obvious to me. So, where do your eyes immediately go when you're when you're like, this isn't this isn't you know screaming VT?
1: Well, I'm going uh, I'm going to the the precordial leads and seeing um, if I can maybe identify. You know, either a right bundle branch or a left bundle branch block, um, looking particularly for like an RSR pattern, something like that, as well as um, one on AVF, say if there's any maybe axis deviations. Um, so that's my first, uh, those are my first two places that I'm looking.
0: Perfect. And I think again, you know, you're, you're hitting all the right key points. Your eyes, when we're looking at a wide complex tachyarrhythmia should immediately go to those precordials, right? Um, we're looking for that RR prime pattern, which is that sort of notching of your QRS complex or, um, as they are lovingly known as the bunny ears. Mm -hmm. Um, we want to make sure we're looking at something, you know, if it doesn't have the VT morphology, what morphology does it have? You know, do you have, um, good R-wave progression. Is there any discordance? Is it fully concordant in all of your precordials, which essentially means, you know, is everything uh, positively deflecting on there or negatively deflecting, or do we have um, sort of variations in that? What does the R-wave progression look like? All the things we think about when we're sizing up a normal sinus rhythm, how does it look in this patient? And so, um, as you're going to see, there is a couple of R-R-prime patterns. There's no discordance. So, you also mentioned the axis deviation. What do we normally look for when you think VT as far as you know going to excuse me one in AVF uh, the axis deviation what are you what's screaming at you that it's VT or not VT extreme deviation right and what what about it if it's extreme deviation, what are you thinking? VTAC I agree so another clinical cue that uh, should clue you into it maybe not being VTAC again there's always you know, cases that change, but um, if it's not an extreme axis deviation, I would, you know, venture to say we got to look deeper into this. And there should be a lot of cues that look for um, trying to differentiate, you know, some sort of a conduction versus VTAC. So this patient, as you're going to see, if you look at the show notes, is in right axis deviation. Like I said, there's some RR' morphology, not really screaming a VT morphology, So, uh, at this point, you've obtained a couple of 12 leads. Let's say you've got your IV access, still no BLS unit on scene. So, you hop on your radio, hey, how far do I have? They're going to tell you you got like 12 minutes, that BLS unit's on the way, 12-minute ETA. Um, Like I said, you've got your IV access at this point, you're you're in the flow of this call multitasking, and you sort of settle in, and you're like, I think a majority of this treatment's going to be getting done in the house. So, what treatment do you want to do right off the bat? kind of a funky question, right? Right, yeah. So you, you get your IV access, you've got an irregular fast rhythm, normotensive, lung sounds uh, a little bit diminished. Uh, he's on at-home oxygen, but um, the volume is sort of just a tiny bit decreased, but they're actually pretty clear um, other than just, you know... N- Diminished in the sense that he's not moving a ton of volume, but he is moving volume. It doesn't sound like there's bronchoconstriction, no adventitious lung sounds, anything like that. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I would,
1: I would obviously, I would, uh, would want to support that uh, his oxygenation uh, as we continue to. I would would have done that right off the bat. Right, we're hypoxemic. We're putting putting a little extra on. Yeah. Um, but from there, I'm I'm gonna figure out. I don't think at this point he's a candidate for um, any type of either synchronous or asynchronous uh, cardioversion or anything like that. Um, just based on the fact that, I mean, you can argue that he's definitely teetering on the on the end of unstable with uh, with his skin presentation and the uncertainty of his baseline mental status but otherwise you know hemodynamically he's he's maintaining
0: well yeah and i agree where you know one thing i want to say is we're always treating the patient not the monitor so hemodynamically he's stable um and i did talk to dan about this when we reviewed the case originally but this is a patient that i would call symptomatically stable someone that's got a little bit of an altered mental status you know complaining of just lightheadedness a little bit of nausea, just not feeling great, says he feels just sick. You know, your typical, maybe I got the flu type of thing, right? right. You know, we hear that all the time. Um, but for the most part, this guy feels, you know, not too bad. And I, I want to urge us to sort of get out of the, my patient is uh, a simulation, and shocking someone is not the most comfortable thing. Now, this patient definitely meets the criteria for some sort of um, mild sedation. If you were going to go down the cardioversion route, But I would urge you to try and do something with a patient like this um, outside of the electricity. As we know, you know, notoriously, no one likes getting kicked by a horse in the chest. And a lot of times that's how they say it feels, right? Absolutely. So we're going down the treatment plan. We're, you know, supporting this guy's O2 status. We're bumping up the oxygen a little bit. A tiny bit of improvement, but he's still pretty hypoxemic. Um, BLS unit's coming away. You've got some good 12 leads on board. What other treatments are you thinking
1: so I mean, at this point, I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to figure out what type of uh, chemical path I want to take uh, for this patient.
0: Right off the bat, um, before chemical, not, I don't want to jump in super fast. But um, are you thinking a fluid bolus here? I would
1: certainly. I would have started one when uh, when uh, I initiated my IV
0: access. Perfect. I agree. So even if we're just keeping something like a slow, There's obviously like a some slow type of flow. Party, like irritability. Yeah. So you know, tachycardia, some sort of. Cardiac issue going on, a regular rhythm, um, a, li- a little wide. Honestly, it's it's hard to see. Maybe it's a fib flutter. Um, it's tough to tell. It's fast, but you know it's not super fast. We can still see some some morphology changes there. So I agree with the fluid bowls. So we get that on board. Um, you know, I would urge you to not have it wide open, but we're not. You know, we're not KVO at this point. We're just trying to get you know get a little bit of fluid in. Study rate. Yep. Let's say you get 150 in, no change. So you were going down the right route chemically. What are you thinking chemically for this patient? So at this point,
1: with uh, not having a wide breadth of experience uh, making these types of decisions, I can only at this point kind of rely on my protocols and and what I know about the medications uh, that we would have in our our toolkit, as you like to say. Um, But at this point... I'm not necessarily convinced that it's VTAC. I'm not necessarily convinced that it's not some, th- some type of irregular rate. Um, and I know from our state protocols that that is simply a medical command call, hey, how do you want me to approach this? The medications obviously that are coming to mind immediately for me, uh, am I considering uh, going like an AMIO or LIDO route? Am I going to maybe consider an adenosine route? Um, but those are the ones that are immediately popping in my head. If I'm thinking some type of either, you know, VTAC or an SVT with a scene,
0: Right. And I know that when we broke this case down, um, my original thought on my treatment plan sort of came as a surprise. What I said, I did, you were like, you, you asked for what? Right. And, um, you know, like Dan said, we always got to remember our local protocols and it changes state to state. So, you know, you have something that's a regular, um, fast, you know, tachy- wide tachyarrhythmia. arrhythmia, Um, We're making a command call. We've transmitted that EKG to the hospital. However, I always do urge, you know, any medic at any level, that your command call isn't a "Hey, what do I do?" It's a "Hey, this is how my patient is presenting. This is what I think the best treatment route is." This is a conversation with a physician that you know you are in front of the patient with a vast um, knowledge of medical diagnoses that you've created, and a lot of these patients are medically ambiguous. You know, a lot of things are going on, so it's hard for a doctor over the phone, like, you know, our viewers are right now, hard to see what this is picturing like, right? So your command call is going to be your recommendation. And um, it's up to the physician to say, I think that's good. Or maybe we should change it based off of like very limited information they get. So sometimes it's really hard for them too. So when we looked at this 12 lead, we're looking at something that is, you know, an RR prime morphology, right axis deviation, you know, in our heads, we might have eliminated VT off the list or not be quite as suspicious of it, I would say. I don't think you should ever really eliminate something, sure. but maybe we're thinking something else now. So Dan went down the right route here. We're thinking Lido, Amio, um, adenosine, and the one that I had mentioned to him that sort of floated by that I think you know a lot of newer providers miss because um, it's just not used super often. Um, you know, we carry cardizem or diltiazem, um, similar to verapamil, but we're looking at like a calcium channel blocker. Uh, so, Dan, you know, was that in your list of differentials? If not, why not?
1: No, that was not in my list of uh, that was not in my list of possible resources. Um, and I actually pulled up preparing for this. I pulled up my med, uh, my my med cards that I prepared for medical school. Uh, Not long before we had this conversation, and uh, it just so happened that Diltiazem was one of my meds that I was doing. It was probably about a week or maybe two at the most before we had this conversation because I was like, I distinctly remember that this is not supposed to be used in wide, uh, wide complex tachycardia. And then we sit in there, we're talking, and I have to kind of convince myself that I need to not look at this as a wide complex tachycardia in the sense that it's not a, or not I'm, if we're going down that route that I'm, I'm saying that this isn't a wide complex tachycardia, that's an aberrant conduction. But then I also have in my list of contraindications, conduction system disturbances. So I'm still kind of, I was still kind of like, I'm not sure why we're having this conversation. This is supposed to be, you know, this is supposed to be some type of, you know, irregular rate, uh, narrow complex tachycardia and, it an a. Right.
0: And so I, I think it's really interesting um, when we're looking at medications, a lot of our decision making is going into, um, you know, different calls, different experiences, textbook knowledge, research papers, videos, podcasts, all of this information that we gather as paramedics, all of the patient contacts that we see, all of the 12 leads that we interpret, all of that comes back sort of to do this critical thinking, trying to figure out how should we approach this patient. So. With Dan hitting the pharmacology, it's really going to bring us into um, the meat and potatoes of this episode. But um, you know, sort of to close this out, we're going to say that uh, you know you called command. They weren't entirely convinced that this wasn't VT. They weren't entirely convinced that it was VT. We're going to say we gave amio physicians orders, slowed the rate down some. Patient did a little bit better. Reports some chest pain with the amio. Um, one important thing we want to do with the amio is make sure we get our pads on, right? We're given a, a dysrhythmic or an anti Um We want to make sure we put cardiac pads on this patient. Even if you didn't have them on before, you're like, maybe he doesn't meet the pads because you're not entirely convinced that this is VT. Now you want to have them on, right? So making sure we're getting those pads on. You give the amio, slow it down to, you know, 106 to 116. Dan, why don't you walk us through what you're looking at as that slowed 12 lead?
1: Let me pull that one up here real quick. Sure, yeah.
0: So, as Dan pulls up that 12 lead here, um, we'll walk you through the rest of the call. Uh, You know, patient is going to remain conscious, um, says he feels a little bit better, like I said, as we're giving that amio, He reports some chest burning, a little bit of, um, you know, chest pain with that. Um, again, not an entirely abnormal response as we're emitting during the amio. Um, remember, we're giving our amio in a 100-milliliter bag of normal saline on a 60-milliliter drip set, so a micro drip set, um, and we're making sure we're giving this over 10 to 15. Um, you know, This is not a drug that we are going to be slamming in the patient that's conscious. Um, this is not given in the way that we would think of giving amio for our unconscious pulse VTs. This is a slow drip, a controlled drip. We're trying to just slow this rate over time that we're going to sort of touch on why that works um, later on. But uh, Dan's got the 12 lead here. It's going to be uploaded in the show notes. We're slowed down. What are we seeing?
1: Yeah, and the beautiful thing is, is kind of the, the what we were talking about when we couldn't necessarily distinguish um, some of these key features in the uh, 12 lead with the faster rate. Once we get this slowed down here, it's very clearly a right bundle branch block.
0: Yep. And I agree. And I think that's, you know, pretty clear on there borderline bifascicular block, but you definitely have right bundle morphology. And so that's one thing you're going to want to consider here. Um, You know, it's hard to say uh, in in my eyes that this patient uh, sort of chemically cardioverted, as we would think, because the morphology stays very similar as the rate decreases, right? So when we were up there in the 160s, 170s, Um, We didn't have a VT morphology, and we sort of stayed with this R, sort of RSR or RR prime pattern, um, the bunny ears that we would see with a right bundle. So um, that in and of itself should be, again, the hairs on the back of your neck being like, okay, maybe this wasn't VT. That's good to know. Either way, you've slowed the rate. You've figured it out. So now we're going to jump into the farm, which is something that Dan and I have gone back and forth on um with this call quite a bit actually so i told dan in preparation for this episode that we're going to go over sort of the classes of our antiarrhythmics and so that goes into our class one a's which are um, our sodium channel blockers Um, sorry that's all of our class one medications are sodium channel blockers and that goes into one a b and c class twos which we're not going to talk about in this episode but those are our beta blockers our class threes are our potassium efflux blockers our class fours are calcium influx blockers. And class fives are sort of their own sort of very unique class of uh, antiarrhythmics, which are going to be our adenosine, uh, digoxin, which are really focused on blocking that AV node. Um, and we'll, we'll touch on those briefly. But um, I'm going to throw it to Dan. Let's start with our class ones. So we talked about it earlier, and you said it's going to be on your list of differentials. When we jump into our class ones, we're thinking... Uh, You know, lidocaine, one we don't carry is procainamide, but that's going to be in there. They touch on it in paramedic school. Some states have it, some states don't, but it's definitely in the national registry. So what are we thinking about our class 1s? What do we know about them? How do they work? Why would it be, you know, beneficial for this patient?
1: Yeah, so, but exactly what you said. So the the class 1, our class 1 antiarrhythmics are sodium channel inhibitors or blockers, Right. And if we're looking at the cardiac action potential, we're looking at that plateau there. We're looking at phase four or the resting membrane potential, um, which is where, this, uh, where our class ones are acting on. And in phase four, just as a, a brief review, uh, that's where we're going to have a slow influx. Uh, we might have a slow influx of sodium, which is going to create a more positive charge within inside of the cell. So if we are using a class one um, antiarrhythmic, that's going to prevent or inhibit the influx of that sodium, uh, which would then change the uh, the interior of that cell to a more positive uh, charge.
0: Right. So when we're thinking of Uh, class one antiarrhythmics right we're thinking of sodium channel blockers we've got the cardiac ap in front of us right so we've got our action potential phase zero is right there at that 90 millivolts in a typical patient right we're sort of at our resting membrane potential and this drug acts on that very sharp first arc that we're seeing that zero phase right where all that sodium comes in it's starting to depolarize that cell this is where these drugs are going to start to act with that right so The nice thing about our class 1s is they're, like I said, the sodium channel blockers, but all of them have a little bit of an effect on uh, the potassium blockade. So when we think about the cardiac AP and sort of how these work, I know Dan's looking at me funny right now, but um, when we think about this, there's a couple things that we want to talk about. and. The first thing that we want to talk about is that actual cardiac action potential. So, we want to talk about the timeline there. And the second thing we want to talk about that goes hand in hand with that is something called the ERP, which is our effective refractory period. So, when we think about that, what can you tell me before I dive super deep into it? Why do these drugs, you know, sort of help to? slow down our ventricular arrhythmias our wide complex arrhythmias because that's a lot of these medications we're using for like a wide complex tachycardia like your lido or your Amio for a VTac VFIb um, something like that why do
1: they work well and so if we're looking at the um, if we're looking at that refractory period we have our absolute and our relative refractory periods and within those within the relative refractory period um, if you change the, uh, ion movements in and out of the cells that can prevent a, um, an excitable cell from creating a new action potential at that time. So if we're slowing that down, uh, especially these, uh, hyper excited cells, these irritated cells from creating a new action potential, um, and creating basically that depolarization all over again, we can ultimately slow that rate down.
0: Right. So. Now that we have our cardiac action potential out, we've got three types of class one antiarrhythmic medications. So we've got a class 1A, a class 1B, and a class 1C, right? So when we think about this, we'll start with our class 1A, but the way that I remembered it is from strongest to weakest, it's a CAB, right? So C is the strongest A is right there in the middle. B is the weakest as far as the sodium blockade goes. So how effective the efficacy of the sodium blocking effect um, that these medications have. And like I said, all of our class ones have a varying um, potassium blockade. So sort of goes hand in hand with how they are um, at blocking the sodium channels with how they sort of help with that potassium blockade. So starting out with class 1A, like I said, if we're doing the CAB method, this is right here in the middle. So. We've got a moderate sodium channel blocker. Um, and for this medication, you know, a lot of times we're thinking of percanamide. So um, why don't you tell me a little bit what you know about that, Dan?
1: Well, percanamide, uh, like you said. One of class, our favorite medications. One, of, the, one of our favorite medications. A long-standing uh, joke in our station there. Um, but like you said, it's a class 1A. And that's ultimately going to slow everything down. By elevating, um, or excuse me, by uh, suppressing ventricular ectopic activity. So again, if we look at that cardiac en- action potential, where we're slowing down that um, that threshold for potential depolarization um, by blocking the influx of the sodium that's going to allow that uh, that rate to slow down and hopefully suppress those uh, ectopic beats or those uh, excited cells from actually causing a depolarization.
0: Right. So when we're thinking about percanamide, the one thing that I want you to think about as far as the cardiac AP goes is this is a, a moderate sodium channel blocker. And what it's really going to do is that Immediate that huge depolar like the polarization period that we see that phase zero when that sodium comes in it's that really sharp curve that goes from negative ninety millivolts all the way up to that fully depolarized cell um, it's really going to lengthen that curve out so it's not going to be as sharp it's going to be a little bit more there on the moderate side so what that's going to do is it's going to you know make a longer refractory period at a longer ERP, which is going to, in turn, give us a longer action potential. So all those excitable ventricular tissues, we're slowing that refractory period in an attempt to slow down that excitable tissue to let, let some of those beats um, get through those Purkinje fibers and the bundle branches and get through our normal electrical pathway. But we're trying to slow it down in an attempt to get um, a lot of those beats sort of withhold them from getting through our normal electrical cycle there and right. as we're doing that um, it's going to slow the rate in there intrinsically with how the medication works so now we're going to move on to our class one b's which if we do the cad method are going to be our weakest sodium channel blockers so this i would think about lidocaine so i'm going to throw right back to you dan our current cardiac expert here oh far what, Far from an expert. What do we know about it? The more about, we talk uh, about it, the more I realize I don't know. <laughs> it, it's uh, a deep hole of information in there that we can get into. But uh, coming out of the exam, what do you know about lidocaine?
1: Well, like you said, it's our class 1B uh, antiarrhythmic. Um, lidocaine is kind of interesting because we can use that um, when we have we can start with another treatment. We can start with lidocaine or we can start with something like amiodarone um, because they work in similar methods, but they also work honestly very differently as well. Um, so we can kind of use that in conjunction or uh, after the fact of using something like amiodarone um, to see if maybe if we're still in maybe a refractory v, uh, VTAC or VFib, if this uh, pathway might be able to kind of break that uh, ventricular rate.
0: Right. So when we're thinking of a class 1B, again, we are thinking about, um, blocking phase 0, right? These are all sodium channel blockers. So we're trying to decrease that slope, um, that phase 0 is because it's notoriously almost a 90 degree angle. If you look at a cardiac AP, it's a, it's like a very strong slope there, um, in phase 0. So with our class 1Bs, we're going to decrease our effective refractory period, um, because it's our weakest sodium channel blocker and we're going to decrease our, uh, action potential duration. So, sort of exact opposite of a class 1a when we think of percanamide our lidocaine is really going to attack in um, on our normal you know electrical cycle and we're going to shorten our refractory period and shorten our ap duration trying again to get um, less of those excitable tissues to uh, you know contract the ventricles uh, in the way that they currently are when we're thinking about a a wide complex tachyarrhythmia right and in our class 1c's we're not really seeing any of them in our box, right? But the main key on it, um, again, these are a lot of our in-hospital medications, but it's going to be our strongest sodium channel blocker. Um, and because of that, there's going to be no huge change to our AP duration um, and really no change to our ERP. It's going to have just a really strong effect on phase zero. So, um, again, nothing sort of pre-hospitally that I would consider as far as a, a class 1C antiarrhythmic goes um, that I would want to throw Dan's way. Um, just because we're just not seeing it in the pre-hospital setting right now in a in a huge sense. So moving on, I do want to talk about our calcium channel blockers, but I think I want to close with that. So I'm going to go into um, our class three antiarrhythmics. So when I think of class threes, I think, Dan, you're probably thinking the same thing as me right now. I'm thinking amiodarone. Is that what you're thinking? A little amiodarone action, exactly. So tell me a little bit about it. Well, like
1: you said, um... With, uh, with it being a class three, this is going to also act to prolong uh, the AP as well as that refractory period. But in the process, it's also slowing down the, uh, it, any uh, potential sinus rate as well. In the process of doing that, uh, throughout, the, throughout this process, the uh, PR and QT are going to increase it's going to allow again for that uh action potential and refractory period to expand out um as we as we follow the the changing slope on the on the action potential there um but the nice thing it also has um alpha and uh beta responses with this as well so you do get some of those uh some of those blockade effects as well from from amiodarone
0: right and so with our with our class threes we're really what I think about here, and I'm going to throw it to you in sort of a contrasting sense, right? So when we think of procainamide and when we think of lidocaine, we're trying to target very specific things in our cardiac action potential. We are trying to attack that phase zero. We're trying to either, um, you know, do something with our effective refractory period. We're trying to lengthen something, get some of those um, excitable tissues calmed down but we're really affecting the electrical pathway there, like our normal electrical conduction. With our class threes, the way that I like to think about it is we're really attacking the tissue. So with amiodarone, we're shutting down ventricular tissue, um, our cardiac contractile cells, and we're not really inside of our normal pathway when I think about amio. I think of it as like our excitable tissue, right? So our atrial excitable tissue and our ventricular excitable tissue. That's why amio can be a bit of a catch-all and it can be used for our A fib or a flutter, but it can also be used for our VT, um, for you know a VF. It's a huge schedule. Well, exactly. You
1: have, the, you have those excitable myocytes outside of the normal conduction pathway. So how do you how do you target something if you don't even? "Quote unquote," know where it's at,
0: right? And so, with amio, I would say it's a really good medication to use when you have a wide, complex tachyarrhythmia that you're not sure exactly what you're looking at. Is this a VT? I'm not sure. My patient's, you know, has a pause, is conscious. Maybe he's normotensive, but it's not. Maybe SVT with aberrancy. You're like, ah, I just don't know. So when I think about amio, I think that we're trying to prolong our action potential duration. We're trying to increase the effective of period, like you said, and it's going to make it really hard to stimulate our activated tissue in the cardiac myocytes. And this is going to affect phase one, two, and three, um, of our cardiac action potential. So when you look at that, it's going to hit all three of those phases to sort of shut down, um, a lot of those activated tissues and try and, uh, do a little bit of rate control that way. But, um, Speaking of rate control, we're going to go into our next group of medications here, and then we're going to close things out and sort of bring this case full circle. But as we're talking about the farm, I'm going to briefly hit, like I already said, on DIG and adenosine. Those are um, AV nodal blockers, so we don't really need to beat that bush in too hard. We are quite literally locking the AV node. We're shutting it down and saying, hey, factory reset. Everyone thinks of the adenosine. We think, you know, turn it off, turn it back on. Fingers crossed. Just Hope for the, the best, right? Reset, yeah, right? the the quick factory reset. All right. So now I am super excited to be talking about the last and arguably most important piece of this podcast, and it's the one that really stumped Dan up that we were talking about. Um, you know, a little bit early on, sort of alluding to this topic, but we're talking about our class four antiarrhythmic medications or our calcium channel blockers. So the one that Dan was like man, I don't know if I if I would have done that. Um, again, it's not in your protocol. There's really no indication for it when we're thinking about a, a wide complex tachyarrhythmia. But in this case here, we are fairly certain, looking at the 12 lead, that we don't have our typical VT morphology. We're not thinking that this is some sort of sub- AV node rhythm, right? We don't think it's ventricular excitability. It just doesn't have that morphology. It's a little bit irregular. regular, fast. Maybe it's a fib, maybe it's a flutter, but it's a little too quick. So we're not seeing any P waves, but it's wide, maybe thinking of bearing conduction. And that is why Dan and I were talking about having cardizem in In your list of differentials. So, the reason that Cardizem or Verapamil, any of your calcium channel blockers, would be a really interesting medication to use here is really because of the pharmacodynamics of it. So, it's going to really act on our AV node as well. We talked about DIG and adenosine sort of you know, suppressing that AV node or really blocking it. So our class fours are also going to work on the AV node a little bit, but they're going to sort of suppress the AV node, which is why we use it in our AFibs or flutters with RVR, like an SVT. And it's going to work if we look at our cardiac action potential again, which has been the common theme of sort of the cardiac pharmacology, which would make sense. It's going to decrease the slope of phase four and phase zero, thus controlling our rate. So when we think about that, when we think about that electrical pathway in our cardiac action potential, if we decrease that resting membrane potential, the slope of phase four and the slope of phase zero, which is the start of that depolarization, we're going to create less beats that are super fast and excited coming from above our AV node to actually get to the AV node, which is really, really cool and interesting with this case. So when we do that, We block all of those excitable tissues, the atrial tissue, the SA excitability, from getting into that AV node and getting into the ventricles. So in this case, we're sort of seeing on our 12 lead a fast and wide irregular rhythm. And it's because all of those signals that are getting fired through the calcium channels, getting in that phase four and phase zero, are getting through the AV node and they're making this really fast rhythm with the presence of a conduction delay below the av node with the bundle branch block so we do want to be really cautious about using cardizem in you know a lot of patients because as we're affecting these calcium channels it acts on the same channel that l type channel that your class 2 your beta blockers act on as well so when we do that we want to make sure that this patient doesn't have any av block so when we think of a conduction delay we want to make sure they don't have like any major AV block, a third degree block, second degree, a wanky block, we want to make sure those blocks are not there. So you got to use caution with that. And you got to monitor the hemodynamics really well, because these patients can get bradycardic, they can get hypotensive. But it's definitely in the list of considerations here, because it looks like this patient has supraventricular excitability. So that excitable tissue is coming from the atria, and you've got some sort of bundle branch delay, so some sort of either bundle branch block or bifascicular block. That when we see how the amio slowed it down, you're actually seeing some P waves. You're looking at a sinus rhythm with right axis deviation and a right bundle branch block, which is really cool to see. And it looks like the morphology didn't actually change a lot when we see, you know, that that rhythm slow it keeps the same morphology that we were seeing in that wide complex tachyarrhythmia, and it stays with that sort of RSR' prime uh, precordial morphology for the QRS complex, which should further your suspicion that it was not originally VT. So, like I said, it's really important to understand how Diltiazem or verapamil works chemically, and we're most likely going to be jumping into a nice big farm episode here with all of our cardiac meds in a future episode, but for this case specifically, it would definitely have an indication, and I would more than certainly talk to your, you know, command physician or anyone that you're talking to about it, because it looks like these beats, like I said, are coming above that AV node. So we want to sort of suppress those beats from getting through the AV node and then getting down into the ventricles, which is why we're seeing that fast, wide complex tachyarrhythmia with no morphology change as we're slowing it. So we really want to make sure that we're attacking those Um, atrial tissues, which is also why amiodarone did work, right? We're acting on the atrial tissue as well, but cardizem is going to specifically block those calcium channels, and it's going to prevent those signals that are excited from getting through, and it's going to slow the rate even more appropriately um, because we're decreasing the slope of phase four and phase zero on our cardiac AP. So with all of that being said, and with that deep farm out of the way, I think this was awesome to have Dan on the episode and sort of throw it back to him to close it out here. But I mean, this was truly a treat for me.
1: Yeah, I mean, ultimately in closing, uh, it really is. It, it like we were just saying, it's it's really nice to be able to you know how many times do we you know, any of us sitting at work have an idea? Um and you know, we we make a million and one different fantastic ideas and and they never actually turn out to uh come into light. So it's really nice to actually see this uh and I'm really excited to see where this is going to keep going. Um as somebody that's in medic school, regardless of if you, you know, are a still a first card EMT that's considering going to medic school, or if you were somebody like me who was doing uh doing MS for almost ten years before you went to medic school, um kind of like what, like what we talked about at the top, you're, you're never, um, you're always in a position where you need to keep learning. Um, you know, we would sit, uh, we would sit countless nights before I ever even was sure if I was going back to med school before I was ever even sure, uh, what exactly, uh, how I wanted to proceed with, with, uh, education. Um, we would sit and we would talk about 12 leads. I still have, uh, the, the diagram that you drew for me on, on what leads were what on a 12 lead. And I kept that in my wallet for the longest time. Cause I was bound and determined to remember that before I got to medic school. Um, so I think it's, I think it's important for us to hold ourselves accountable um, to make sure that we are up on our education. So that way we can uh, apply this critical thinking in these types of uh, outside the box situations. And I don't even like to call them outside of the box situations because we live more outside of the box than we do inside of the box, uh, like we were just saying. So I think we need to hold ourselves accountable for that, but we also, in a in a good working relationship stance, need to hold our our partners and our coworkers accountable for that too. You know, you're uh, you might be an EMT, go teach that that newer EMT something. You might be an A, go teach the other A or an EMT something. Talk, have these conversations with your partners, with your medics, um, with whoever on your shift, have these types of conversations, have these case debriefings to to be able to get those different thoughts and ideas out there. You're, you are going to think about a case, uh, differently than I am and differently than our supervisor will. Um, and I mean, obviously, you know, the, the things that need to remain true will obviously they'll always remain true, but different perspectives can really help open that uh, that door to more effective critical thinking. So I think my biggest thing that I took away from this case, outside of the obviously the, the clinical knowledge that was gained, um, is just to always never, never close your mind to something until um, you hear the whole side of it and until you are able to kind of work through that process. Always keep an open mind to to education, no matter where it's coming from. And uh, so we can be the best providers that we can be for our patients.
0: Right. The main thing is is critical thinking and getting outside of the box, getting outside of your comfort zone, really, because, um, you know, even when you're a medic, after you pass that NRP and you get your card, it's really easy to get comfortable and be like, ah, you know, I've got my card. I don't need to critically think. But it's these patients that are so medically ambiguous, that have so many changes that... Really make you critically think, and it's what the difference is um, that makes a you know a your average Joe medic and your good medic the ones you think about, and it's what you said that again this whole podcast was all about right talking to your coworkers breaking down cases helping that new EMT learn the stair chair that they've never used before because their school couldn't afford a stair chair or they went to like an online thing during COVID and they never even touched a reeves or a stair that's, chair that's before.
1: That's a whole other topic we can have a whole, right. a whole podcast on. So,
0: you know, all of that comes into... What Dan said, and that is getting outside of the box, getting outside your comfort zone. And so I hope that in reviewing this case a little bit and taking a look at some of the pharmacology, taking a look at you know the cardiology, um, the main thing that I want to leave you guys with um, that are either new medics or medic students is obtain all of your diagnostic information, obtain all of your subjective and objective information and intervene appropriately, right? Obviously, there's going to be a time that we might not be able to get all the diagnostics because we got to intervene now. But when you can, get all that information and make a good, critically thought out, well thought out clinical diagnosis. Because at the end of the day, our job title is paramedic, but we are clinicians, we're patient advocates we're providers and we got to act as such, right? We got to make critical thinking decisions on the fly in someone's house with no backup because we are clinicians and these are decisions that we have to make. And, you know, no one should tell you otherwise, because at the end of the day, no matter where you go to paramedic school, no matter where you're practicing, you are that patient's advocate and you are the provider that's in front of them at that time and they're relying on you to make the best medical decision for them and you know that's what these case studies are all about so dan man this was awesome i mean this is something i've been looking forward to since we started talking about it um back in the old gingerbread hut so uh this has really been a treat uh, i'm so glad that i got you on here so um, i'm glad
1: to be here and i definitely look forward like i said i look forward to both seeing where this goes and obviously uh I would love to come back as I uh, continue through med school and uh, thereafter. Uh, I, I'm I think sure there's a lot be... of. I think there's a lot of conversations to have um, as as new medics and as um, you know, still relatively new, uh, advanced providers, if you will. Right. Um, there's there's so much information out there, and there's so much to, to really talk really hit the about. chair there
0: but uh yeah no i I think uh a constant theme here is uh uh that constant improvement, and I am sure you guys will be hearing from Dan again um Dan, you're my first guest on this podcast, which truly is, is, an is honor. yeah it's truly an honor to me i mean this is uh, this was really awesome, so guys, like i said, as always um all of the e k g strips links videos, all of that's going to be in the uh, show notes. So give that a look, have that cardiac action potential with you for this episode. And hopefully you take away a little bit uh, more than you did before and you have a different outlook just the way that um, Dan provided a new outlook for me on this case. And I provided a new outlook to him. Hopefully we can get, you know, thousands of different perspectives from all of our listeners. Um, So I'd love to hear from you. The email is always in the show notes and we'll see you next time. Dan, thank you. Thank you.